broadcasting live from the R&R studios in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's the premier destination for an inside look into the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor and Lincoln Kennedy, presented by Tequila Embajador. Very legitimate concern. Thought he played really well, um, competed really well. Uh, we like him a lot. Uh, wanted to get him back, obviously. Um, one of the things that running back is that there's usually a lot of them out there. You know, and, and so sometimes you you got to look through when you look through the cut sheets, there aren't that many guards tackles out there, you know, but they're, they're the wideouts and running backs are about this long, you know, so you got to sift through a lot. Um, but sure, he put good tape out there. We were worried about it. That's Raiders general manager Mike Mayock today at the practice facility in Henderson talking about Trey Regas, uh, the uh, young rookie running back who. The Raiders took a little bit of a calculated risk, put him on waivers. Um, I think, as Mike explained, it's a bunch of running backs that cut th- get cut this time of year. Unfortunately, um, you know, it's it's a position that's kind of changed over the years. Uh, so they felt like the Raiders did that uh, Trey was going to get through waivers and then be added right back onto the practice squad. By the way, I was over at the M Hotel earlier uh, for a meeting, and a bunch of young Raider players were there. So you kind of got an idea that a lot of the guys that got cut yesterday were going to be right back on the practice squad. That's kind of how it works. It's just sort of the game you have to play. But uh, Regas is is back on the practice squad. We'll see what it means. we got to f- first figure out what the extent of Jalen Richard's injury, if it's going to land him on injury reserve, and does Regas then get elevated to the 53-man roster. But that's a story for another day. We're going to go out to the Raider Nation guest line. And welcome in the very talented Ashley Nicole Moss. Uh, she is the host of Laces Out, uh, which I believe is on. It's it's on SI now, right? That's where you. Can, I, I know I've seen it on on YouTube, but uh, Ashley, where where can we find Laces Out? Your 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 great show. First of all, hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Yes, it is on Sports Illustrated. Um, it's on their website and their um, social channels as well. So Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Um, all over the place, and we're not showing signs of slowing down anytime soon. Uh, not at all. And uh, by the way, there's some history making going on right now uh, with Ashley Nicole Moss. She just accepted a job with uh, uh, Sports Illustrated. Can you explain what uh, what you're doing and why this is so so significant? So I am going to be one of the hosts. Um, it's me and another gentleman by the name of Robin. Um, I am the host of their digital platform. Um, so that just kind of covers all things digital, whether, you know, doing fun content like Laces Out, original series, interviews, um, daily content, whatever it is that we push out on our channels, I will be part of it in some way, shape, or form. It's historic because I am the first black woman to ever have this position. So um, it's history-breaking. It's a, it's a piece of history I'm honored to hold. But more importantly, I look forward to making sure that I'm not the last. So. Yeah, absolutely, 1,000%. Congratulations. Uh, proud of Thank you. you. And um, we know you're going to do a great job uh, doing that. All right, Ashley, we're going to get to football in just a little bit. But i got to say, I've got a... 16-year-old son who's a junior in high school and a 14-year-old daughter who is a freshman in high school. Like It it's kills me to even say that, but it's the, that's what's going on right now. And going back for a couple of years now, all right, as, as they were getting ready to go to school in the mornings, blah, 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 blah all that, you know, and they're, they're, they're on television. They're going to YouTube. They're going to here. They're going there. I noticed that they kept watching all of a sudden just – 
all these shows about sneakers, clothes, fashion, and it usually involved some sort of a sports figure that was the centerpiece of it all. They're at a sneaker store. Uh, they're in somebody's closet looking through sneakers. Uh, and I just got fascinated with the whole phenomena of that. And that's obviously what you're doing with Laces Out. And I got to ask you, yeah, when did this start becoming a thing? And I got to say this too, my bank account isn't all that happy about it. I'm just going to say that, but it's all good. I understand. I was 16 year old, uh, a 16-year-old as well. But when did this start becoming kind of the phenomena that has grown into? I think it's really when, you know, the transition between um, the era of social media really started to explode versus the era of it just being in its beginning stages, right? So you remember in the beginning stages of social media, you still had to camp out for shoes, right? You could still walk into your Foot Locker, you know, your finish line, whatever, you know, shoe store was near you, and you would still be able to cop the shoes that you wanted. You know, you go up to the person, hey, do you have these in a size X, Y, or Z? And you would normally, nine times out of ten, you would be able to walk out of the store with the shoes that you wanted. But as social media started to progress and online shopping became more and more prevalent, that actually went ahead and expanded to the sneaker game. And then also when you see athletes, you know, doing their tunnel walks, specifically in the NBA, you know, they are wearing the newest of the new, the freshest of the fresh. And it went ahead and just um, went ahead and, and just exploded this whole concept of trying to do what the athletes do. And that's where you get the apps, you know, like sneakers and like goat, that kind of are in the business of taking these exclusive drops that you usually miss out on on Saturday morning and it ruins your whole weekend <laughs> and making them and reselling them for two, three times the value. It's become a phenomenon. It's become, you know, almost a game, if you will. It's, it's almost like playing fantasy football. You know what I mean? It's like who can come out on top after every single drop. And it's become an obsession for a lot of people, truthfully, including myself. I'm smiling when you say that because um, for for my kids, the chase is so important. Yeah. And, and, and you know, like my son will say, say to me, like he fi- found a great vintage shirt, you know, T-shirt or something like that from a Michael Jordan or a Kobe or whatever. And he would be pr- he's proud because he got it for half the cost or, you know, he, he waited and was patient about it. And so that chase is now kind of important as well, it seems like. Yeah, the chase is the best part of it. You know, some people find it frustrating, but at the end of the day, you ask any sneakerhead or collector connoisseur or whatever you want to call them, they really enjoy that. It's about being able to get your hands on something that not everybody can get their hands on. Whether you do that the organic way via retail or even if you, you know, have the big bucks and you go ahead and you get something resale value or you're in the business of making money and you go ahead and you are the reseller and you sell it for two, three times the value. So I think there's corners of this phenomenon of sneaker culture, if you will, for everybody. And I think that there are some people who genuinely just want to go ahead and collect as many of these shoes that they can. There are people who are in the business of making money. And then there are people who aren't as obsessive, but if they can get something that's rare and exclusive, they love to do it, and they try to get as much as they can. It's it's very cool to see how the business of sneakers has evolved in just such a short amount of time. We're talking to Ashley Nicole Moss. Uh, you could follow her at Ash Nicole Moss. Uh, she's uh, with SI Now, SNY TV, uh, Knicks Fan TV. Yes, she's a huge Knicks fan. Uh, we'll, we'll let that slide uh, here on the West Coast. We know it's all about the Lakers, uh, but it is what it is. 
Um, okay, so Ashley, I was watching uh, The Malice in the Palace, right? Uh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, loved it. Uh, trip down memory lane, not so good uh, in some parts. Um, but, you know, it was, it was interesting to take a look back at that. And I bring it up because that kind of spawned the NBA to step in and start trying to clean things up a little bit. Uh, and and the, the centerpiece for that was a dress code that they started, um, you know, putting in yeah. place. And it, was, it caused, you know, you're probably too young, uh, maybe, to, to realize the controversy that that, co- that that caused. It was, it got bad for a little while. But in the aftermath of that, what you started to notice, and I've covered the NBA, I covered the Lakers, was um, I, think, I think something positive came out of that. And you're seeing it now more and more. You started to see it, you know, back then, uh, a short while after it was instituted, which was this fashion show that started to emerge, like guys walking to the locker room in, you know, these tremendous suits and, and stylish and all of that. And it, and it took a whole other turn and, and, and it hasn't stopped since then. Um, what do you, can you attribute some of what happened with that dress code and the aftermath of it to what we see now where there's this intersection of sports and uh, and fashion that like we've never seen before. Yeah, so I think you know the dress code obviously isn't nearly as strict as when David Stern implemented it back in 2005. Right, that was right off the heels of Malice in the Palace. So I think the whole league was just in disarray. Obviously, a lot of players did not like the dress code. Right. You know, people like Stephen Jackson were very outspoken about the fact that they felt it targeted black athletes, black NBA players specifically, because, you know, it took away the swag of a lot of the yep. inner cities, you know, the baggy jeans and the oversized t-shirts and the do-rags and things like that. But I think as the league has progressed, and I think that the NBA is the most progressive league in all of sports, um, or at least one of the most progressive leagues, I think that they really understood the fact of how culture, specifically black culture and culture of, you know, hip-hop and just the inner cities and just urban if you will, has really just left their mark on so many of these guys in a league that's over 70% black, you can understand it. So I think also the way that music and sports kind of intersect and they coexist with each other, it's impacted. Any way you you slice it, it's impacted. So you can't have guys dressing like they're on Wall Street when that's not who they are. You know, you you have ballplayers like James Harden who are hanging out with rappers at Fashion Week. He's not going to dress you know, like a guy who works a nine-to-five. And I think the NBA has kind of um, taken that and realized that there's also a whole world that's not tapped into when you go ahead and you celebrate that. Because now you can do collaborations with the biggest sports um, fashion industries in the world, and you can do these um, type of lines and things like that that just celebrate just the individualism and the culture of sports fashion, specifically in basketball. And I think that the league has finally, you know, embraced that in totality, and we're seeing it bigger than ever before. We're going to get to the NFL because I know that they're starting to up their uh, fashion game as well. But really, the NBA is just such so I- iconic uh, in that regard. And th- what people are wearing as they come into the arena are almost as big a story as what the heck happens in the game. Um, so I'm going to ask you, top three, you have to see him every game that such and such is playing or that guy is playing. You have to see what he's wearing as he's walking into the arena. Who's the top three right now? So for me, number one is Russell Westbrook. Always. Huge fan of Russ. Um, I think his attitude alone makes him just the perfect specimen for fashion. He's not afraid to take risks. I think he also, you know, is not the biggest guy, 
He has a very lanky, slim um, physique, which is very European. Um, and I think, again, you know, he knows what works, and, and he's not afraid to take risk. And, and everything that he does where whether you like it or not, is tailored perfectly, and it looks great on him. So I'm a big fan of him. Um, you know, we haven't seen much of him yet, but I'm excited to see what he brings to the table, and that's Jalen Green. I mean, if his draft mm, seat is any pressure's indication on. of... Listen, if his draft seat is any indication of what he's going to bring yeah. to the seat, he looked like the Bee Gees mixed with the Migos. I mean, it was... <laughs> incredible he's not he's another one like russell westbrook not afraid to take take risk and on a more you know um actually you know i'm gonna go all out again serge Ibaka, huge fan of serge Ibaka. think he's an impeccable dresser um and i'll do one for honorable honorable mention i do like chris paul i think he has a great fashion sense and again he's not the tallest um he's not the biggest but i think that he is a nice um, inspiration for guys who maybe aren't willing to take the, the risk of Westbrook and Ibaka and are, is a little bit more easy for a lot of regular guys to copy. That's yeah. a look that you can recreate all day, every day. Yeah, he has kind of that safe but still, um, you know, uh, uh, fashionable uh, edge to him, I think. So uh, good call uh, on Chris Paul. We're talking to Ashley Nicole Moss. You could follow her at Ash Nicole Moss. All right, transitioning to football because, you know, the football players, they're, they're like, uh, you know, we got fashion too uh, over here, so uh, don't forget about <laughs> us. I think it's improving, um, you know, as the years go on and time goes on, especially as the NBA starts, you know, pushing that envelope out further and further. Are there any NFL players? Uh, I know Cam Newton, you know, going to miss him. I'm sure he's going to land somewhere here pretty soon because he was fairly iconic in his own way. Um, who amongst the NFL players are starting to really emerge in that world? Um, for me, I think the only NFL player that, that I can think of off the top of my head that's consistently just consistent when it comes to fashion is Odell Beckham. Yes. Um, I think, you know, he has really made a name for himself in the fashion game, but I think also, you know, football is, is a hard sport to dress, right? Because you have guys who are just freaks of nature, right? They're huge. And fashion, especially high fashion, is not really meant for guys that big, right? It's very hard to dress them. Odell has a benefit of he's not the tallest. He's like 5'9", I think. He's not the biggest in weight. So he's kind of the perfect specimen for a lot of, you know, these high fashion brands. But even taking that aside, I think he really has mastered street fashion. You know, you can see him in things that you can get, you know, as a quote-unquote regular guy. I mean, anybody can get half the population to dye the tips of their hair blonde <laughs> for a year straight. Yeah. It is a trendsetter. Oh. You know what I mean? Absolutely. All right. So when it comes to Cam, were you rolling your eyes or were you going, huh, not bad? You know, I, I like Cam in the sense that he is who he is. You know, one thing about Cam Newton is he's authentic. You know, you never have to question who Cam is, where he's from. He wears Atlanta on the heart of his sleeve and he dresses like a true Atlanta guy. And I think that the thing that I can appreciate about anybody, whether, you know, I agree with what you're wearing or I don't, I think that um, if you rock it and you have confidence in it, I, I can't help but appreciate that and respect it. You know what I mean? Be true to who you are. And that's how I feel about Cam Newton. No and question. like you said, I hope, I hope we get to see him dress for game days, game days real soon. 
I, I think you will. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy behind. And I saw uh, your Twitter feed, uh, so I know that uh, there were some thoughts that you were sharing. And by the way, if you're going to come at Ashley Nicole Moss on Twitter, you <laughs> better bring it. All right. I know for a fact right. she's half Italian. I want to say half Sicilian, uh, if, if I'm am, correct. Yeah, all right. My so mom's Sicilian. there you mm-hmm. go. So be, I'm just t- saying right now. Uh, don't bring it and and not expect her to give it right back because she's that side of her is going to come out. I've seen it. Um, all right, so we're what eleven, twelve days away from the NFL season. Uh, I can't wait. Um, actually, sooner than that, it's like a week away because there's a Thursday night game. Um, who do you have your eye on in the NFL um, as far as teams and storylines? Well, I always have my eye on my Dallas Cowboys. Of course, to be honest. Okay, my Dak Prescott. I got to make sure he's good to go Thursday against Tampa Bay, next Thursday against Tampa Bay. So, you know, always have eyes on um, my Dallas Cowboys. Definitely have eyes open for Green Bay. Want to see how Aaron Rodgers is going to do out there. Is this going to be his last season in Green Bay? He's playing with a chip on his shoulder. He's not a happy camper. Um, Obviously, Tampa, you want to know, can Tom really do it again? But in between that, I think there's a lot of other storylines that are going to be really cool. I'm excited to see how Jameis does. Um, you know, first postseason for the Saints without Drew Brees at the helm, that's going to be interesting. Washington's going to be interesting. Um, obviously, all eyes are on Tua down in the 305. Yes. Definitely want to see how he does. And a lot of people are just waiting for him to screw up so they can say, I told you so. <laughs> right, right. All the young quarterbacks interested to see, you know, what ultimately happens in Chicago with Justin Fields. And we can't forget Houston. Houston is a disaster. So what happens there is also going to be very, very telling. All right. So last question, um, because it relates to the quarterbacks. And you brought up Justin Fields. Uh, This has been kind of a – it's a great quarterback class, uh, this rookie class. So I'm going to throw them all out at you, and I want you to tell us who's going to have, by the end of this year – Forget about long range. That'll all sort itself out. But at the end of this year, who's going to be the quarterback that emerges from this class? Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson from the Jets. I'm not quite sure about him. Justin Fields and, of course, Mac Jones, who uh, or Trey Lance, uh, who I just saw on Sunday, looked really good. And Mac Jones, who unseated Cam Newton. Of those quarterbacks, who do you feel at the end of the year is going to be the one that everyone's like, wow, uh, that's the dude? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say Mac Jones because I really feel like out of all the quarterbacks you just mentioned, he's really in the best position to succeed, right? You can't ask for a better coach than Bill Belichick. You can't ask for a better system than that New England system. And I think the crazy thing is if you watch Mac Jones play, it's eerie how similar he is to a young Tom Brady. And we saw what Belichick did with a young Tom Brady. So I think he really is in the position to surpass all those guys. I think Trevor Lawrence is going to have a very rough rookie season. Um, Jacksonville is just a mess. I don't think Trevor Lawrence, I mean, if you saw him in preseason, he was getting his bell rung. And Urban Meyer did not seem any urgency to take him out anytime soon. So that was a concern. Um, Justin Fields, I'm already impressed with him, but obviously, you know, he's not getting that starting job. And I think that he shouldn't. I think there's no reason to rush your future out there. Um, until you're 100% certain that you have to and that he's ready. Um, so I think Mac Jones, I mean, Zach Wilson knows nothing to sleep on either. He's looked pretty sharp, but I just think ultimately Mac Jones, just all the cards are in his favor to succeed. And if he doesn't, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation as well because a lot of people are going to say, look at everything that you had. 
how come you're not the top dog at the end of the season, at least in terms of numbers. Obviously, no one expects the Patriots to win a Super Bowl this year, but top dog in terms of the rookie quarterbacks, Mac Jones should be top three, even top two. I think that's a safe bet, and I think uh, for people that don't like the fact that Bill Belichick might actually get the last laugh, you might have to suck that one up, unfortunately, because uh, that might be coming. Uh, but what I, what I will say is that you have an open invitation to come back on at some point, and we can reassess the situation. Uh, so hopefully you'll be open to that uh, at some point. Ashley, thank you so much for spending some time with us in the huddle. Truly uh, a pleasure. Good luck in your new endeavors, and, and of course, great success uh, with Laces Out. Of course. Thank you so much. Looking forward to talking to you soon. All right. You got it. That's Ashley Nicole Moss. You could follow her at Ash. Uh, Nicole Moss, and uh, she does a great job hosting Laces Out. You can catch her at SI Now. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. Interact with the show. Text Vinny at 69187 or tweet at him at Vinny Bonsignor. This is In the Huddle with Raiders beat writer Vinny Bonsignor on Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. I'll tell you a cool story, and this is kind of what I think scouting is all about. Um, and in our building, where the coaches are so involved, it's even a better story. Um, so uh, I got a call from one of our cross-check scouts after the Illinois Pro Day. And he said, Mike, do me a favor and put your eyes on Nate Hobbs. He just ran 4.45. He jumped 41 inches. He tested better than we thought he was going to test. And I'm not sure if we got the right grade on him. We had a good, we had a good, don't get me wrong, we had a pretty solid grade on him. But we, I, I want to make sure he's not getting lost in the cornerback shuffle. So I got off the phone and literally put his tape on right there. And I was like, man, he, he competes, he's tackle, he tackles, he's tough. He's a three-year starter in the Big Ten. He was an outside corner almost predominantly. And he played special teams. I mean, this was a hard-nosed, tough guy. And he just ran 4-4-5 and jumped 41 inches. So I literally got out of my chair. I spent about two hours watching him, got out of my chair, sprinted downstairs to the second floor, grabbed Ron Miles, defensive back coach. And again, it, it, every building's different. Trust me, I spent 18 years in NFL Network being in all, build, all the buildings, and everybody does their jobs differently. Uh, we're a coach-driven building with our scouts. So I run downstairs, say, Milo, get your eye on this guy, please, okay, and tell me what you think today. He comes running back up in about an hour and a half. We got something. He said, I think, you know, this, this kid will compete at nickel. And he was an outside guy. And the reason we thought he could compete at nickel was how tough he was. Okay? His quickness and his toughness. He, he rarely missed tackles. A very aggressive kid. So when you talk about moving outside to inside, that's what you're looking for. A, you got to be a quick processor, which was the – we can't tell whether he was or not at, as an outside corner. But B, you better be quick and you better be tough. And he was, he was those things. So all of a sudden – now we kind of push him up the board a little bit more. The coaches like him. The scouts like him. Uh, we got him on a Zoom call, and he knocked it out of the park. And what our coaches do is they challenge him pretty hard mentally. They give him some of our Raider verbiage, and they push it out and challenge it back. He got all the concept, concepts immediately. I was on the Zoom call. I saw. I wasn't like I, I heard about it. I, I was on the call. He got all the concepts. The coaches drilled him. He got an A-plus on that drill, and we're sitting back there going, okay, what's wrong with this picture? Three-year starter in the Big Ten, tough, competitive. Every one of our scouting grades on him with, with competes and toughness was at a high end. So I, I think the cool part for me is seeing it come together. 
It started with the trigger from the cross checker to tell me to get my eye, my eye on him. It went from there down to Milo. It, then it went to the Zoom call, and then it was the whole group getting together saying, we got to get this guy. You know, where is he probably going to go league value, and at what point do we have to pull the trigger? That's Mike Mayock, uh, the Raiders general manager, talking over at the practice facility today in Henderson uh, about our guy Nate Hobbs, who, um, you know, by now, uh, no, no, no surprise anymore. Uh, I think he's uh, a known commodity among Raider Nation and Raider fans. I think um, in time he's going to be a much more uh, pronounced uh, person of interest in the NFL, across the NFL, because I think he's that kind of a cat. I think he's that good of a player. Uh, And it was pretty easy to see early on. You just know sometimes. Now, you know, maybe he's already peaked, and this is the best we're ever going to see in Nate Hobbs. I don't think that that's the case. And it's interesting uh, hearing um, Mike Mayock explain the process and you know I give Mike Mack a lot of credit because he's not a yes or no kind of a guy and some guys are and they're not going to give you anything and it is what it is um I've been fortunate enough the last two teams that I've covered less need with the Rams and now Mike Mack uh here with the Raiders when you get a chance to talk to them they're gonna open up and they're gonna explain and they're gonna shed light on things and I think that you know it makes everybody's job easier I think the fans are more informed as a result Uh, I don't think he's given away any secrets or anything like that Uh, and I think it's just really refreshing to hear the general manager kind of walk everybody through uh, the process and I appreciate it because none of that is a surprise to me everything that I heard um, is just not a surprise to me I'll just leave it at that but also you know, when you when you're around this now as as long as I've been, and you you talk to scouts, you talk to general managers, you talk to coaches, and it's not just what you see sometimes, you know, in the Zoom meetings or or you know on on Raiders.com when it's when it's all televised. Uh, even more so is you know behind the scenes type stuff, and and you start uh, getting a sense for process and how teams go about doing it. And I've been really impressed to say the least, uh, with the Raiders and how they go about their process in the John Gruden, Mike Mayock era. I wasn't here previously. I was covering the Rams uh, from 2016 on. And um, I think once in Los Angeles when I was covering the Rams, once Sean McVay came in and and married with Les Snead, the general manager, I was super in talking to their scouts and and everybody in that organization – you know, getting a sense for how they did things and being honestly impressed. I'm not always impressed. I wasn't impressed with Jeff Fisher. I was not impressed with the Jeff Fisher operation. For six straight weeks uh, in the season of 2016, the Rams' first season back in Los Angeles, I wrote every week. I was a columnist at the time uh, for the Los Angeles Daily News. I pretty much wrote for six straight weeks. The Raiders, I mean, the Rams have to get rid of Jeff Fisher. This is not working. And, you know, I don't take great glee in that or slap myself on the back for that. It just was obvious that it wasn't working. He wasn't capable of doing the job. Okay. So I'm not one of those guys that's just going to give it up to you because whatever, that's all you do, you know, and da da da. You don't want to stir the pot. You don't want to have to call somebody out when they deserve to be called out. So when I'm sitting here telling you, I'm genuinely impressed with 
what Mike Mayock is doing and what John Gruden is doing. I get it. There's a perception out there about uh, you know about the Raiders, but guess what? Here's 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 where your perception can go right out the window. I remember when the Rams hired Sean McVay and guys like Mike Lombardi. I think it was Mike Lombardi. Or some some there were some people out there. I don't want to throw Mike under the bus, but there were a lot of people that are like they're handing it over to this 31 year old guy. Uh, what are they doing? You know, and and even their ex coach, his name will uh, come back to me in a second. Just lambasted the Rams and were critical. And I I remember heck when I was doing my due diligence on Sean McVay, I was like, wow, this guy's got something. I like this guy. This is before they even hired him. I was going through the coaches that they were interviewing, and I was like, wow, this guy. There's something about this guy. Um, and sure enough, he's a special coach. And their general manager, their front office, the way they do things is top-notch, and I can't speak of what happened with the Raiders prior to me covering them, all right? I'm only going on what I know now to be true, and hearing stories like that, hearing uh, stories about kind of the process with Alex Leatherwood, you quickly understand, and that's why you have to laugh at some of the things that you hear out there, that none of this is knee-jerk. None of this is not well thought out. None of this isn't is, is, is not planned out. There's a long process that goes into every single player that the Raiders bring in as a free agent, as a draft pick. You're not always going to bat 1,000. That's just impossible, and it's unrealistic to even expect that. But they're, they're putting themselves in a much better position to succeed rather than fail on these player acquisitions because of the process that leads to it. The Raiders haven't always been perfect, obviously, over these last 20 years. It's why they ended up in the position that they were in. And all I can comment on is what I'm seeing and kind of try to compare it to other places that I've seen. And I think that the Raiders are headed in the right direction. And the team that I saw in training camp, the team that I saw in OTAs, day after day after day after day, looks better than it did last year at this time. Defensively, it looks better. It looks deeper. It looks faster. It looks bigger, physically bigger. It seems like they know what they're doing. There's a synergy. So, you know, hearing Mike Mayock talk about the process that led them to Nate Hobbs is just really cool, and I'm glad that fans get a chance to hear that from time to time. It started with a cross-checker somewhere in the middle of America who will, at this point, go nameless. He's out there on the road day after day after day covering his area. Nobody knows who he is. There's no fanfare. He's going to campus. To, I'll just tell you what they do. Monday, they're in Illinois. Tuesday, they're at Michigan. Wednesday, you know, maybe they're or, – or, you know, maybe they no, – no, I'll, I'll, I'll say it better – Monday, they're at Illinois. Tuesday, they're at Northwestern. Thursday, they might be at Notre Dame. That's kind of close, those three schools. And then Saturday, maybe they'll go to a game. And they're staying up late at night writing up reports. What are they doing Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday? They're talking to coaches. They're watching practice. They're talking to um, the cafeteria worker. They're talking to the strength and conditioning coach. They're talking to the guy that you know brings the footballs out from the locker room to the field. They're talking to the guy that, you know, helps put the goalposts together. Hey, what's so-and-so all about? What's that guy all about? They're doing their due diligence. And sometimes when they see a guy like Nate Hobbs, they get on the call, get on the phone, and call the general manager directly and say, hey, man, 
I'm just letting you know. Put Hobbs back in. Put the tape back in. Something's not right with the grade that we've given him. Let's look at him again. I'm pleading with you to do that. And what Mike Mayock said, I immediately put the tape in for the next two hours watching this guy. And what did Mike Mayock do at that point? Ran downstairs to the coaches level at Henderson, the practice facility at Henderson. He grabbed Ron Milas, the secondary coach, and said, dude, you got to look at this guy. Maybe we're, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe the cross checker is missing something. Maybe we're overseeing something, seeing something that's not there. And Ron Milas gets a look and a deeper look and looks again. And then collectively, they're all like, uh, yeah, this guy is needs to be a priority target. Didn't get a chance to talk to Mike Mayock today about this is the other part of it, shrewdly playing the draft process. Because you know right around the third round, I, I almost can guarantee you this, Nate Hobbs was out there. And the Raiders at some point start thinking, all right, we think that, you know, he's going to last until a certain point in the draft. But then you start worrying that, you know, if we saw it, chances are somebody else saw it too, to the point where maybe they want to pull the trigger in the third round, or maybe it's the early of the fourth round. At what point do you feel confident about holding off and waiting? At, and at what point do you say, Look, it's go time or else we're going to lose a guy that we're going to regret losing out on. So you have to play that game, too. And that's where relationships come into play. That's where instincts come into play. That's where intelligence that you're getting from maybe other teams comes into play. So it's a, it's a, it's a chess game. And fortunately for the Raiders, it all worked out. Thanks in a large part to a nameless cross-checker scout somewhere in the Midwest who first saw Nate Hobbs and continued to go to bat for him and would not settle for whatever grade the Raiders had on him and urged Mike Mayock to take another look and see if maybe we're missing something on this guy and we need to lift that grade up a little bit. And that's exactly what happened. Love to hear stuff like that. We're going to go out to the Raider Nation listener line. Mitch is in New Jersey. How you doing, Mitch? How you doing, Vinny? I made it home. That, uh, this Ida, it's my wife's name too, by the way. Oh wow! It really is. I thought I thought I was gonna see my last day today. Oh man! Well, I'm, I'm happy in. that you're home, safe, hopefully dry, and calling us up. Good. <laughs> uh, all I gotta say is two things. John Brown, it's disappointing. I wish had had I known, maybe had the Raiders known that. Maybe they would have spent a few more bucks and kept uh, Nelson Aguilar. And I like that defensive line. I'm sorry to see those guys go, but I'd love to see Everson Griffin. Give him a shot. I think he's a borderline Hall of Fame. What do you think? And um, I want to dry up, take a shower. Um, all right, yeah, you do that uh, and stay safe. No, I don't think Everson Griffin uh, is, is on the radar. I think, I mean, the Raiders are nine deep at defensive line. How many more guys do you want, Mitch? Um, just kidding. And honestly, stay safe. Uh, please stay safe. Uh, no, I think the Raiders feel pretty darn good about where they are, uh, along the defensive line. I mean, I just named them all. Think about it. Clee Farrell, Max Crosby, Unique Ngakwe, 
Gerald uh, McCoy, Quinton Jefferson, Jonathan Hankins, Darius Phylon. Um, who am I missing? Oh, Solomon Thomas. That's eight guys that, you know, uh, that can get the job done. And they're not going to be asked to to play a million snaps like last year. They're going to be able to – there's going to be load management involved uh, for all of these guys. Like we talked about so many times last year, feel like Max Crosby played way too many snaps. And I felt like his tongue was hanging off the ground by the end of last year, by the end of games. Think about it, guys. When were the Raiders at their most vulnerable? Forget, I mean, yes, third downs were defensively we were talking about. Third downs were just terrible. They were one of the worst in the league in getting teams off the field on third down. To me, that's talent. To me, that's being connected defensively, cohesive, all that. But where they were really bad, too, was closing games out and not having enough left in the tank to close it out. Closing out games, closing out seasons. And the Raiders went and rebuilt that defensive line, and it goes about nine deep right now. I think every single one of those guys is going to get time and is going to be a factor. I don't think at this point adding another defensive lineman uh, you know, doesn't much good. I think they're good. And don't forget Malcolm Kuntz, too. Malcolm Kuntz is on the team, on the team for a reason. Is he going to dress out every week? Not so sure early on. We'll see how that all plays out. But I think before it's all said and done, they're going to carve out a role for Malcolm Kuntz. Um, and, uh, and, and, and to me, his, his, his best football is ahead of him. But for right now, I think the Raiders are pretty good with the nine-man rotation that they have. And they're going to, like Mike Mayock said, attack coming at teams in waves. You're in the huddle with Vinny Monsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador, Raider Nation Radio 920 AM on a Wednesday. You're listening to Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. Now, back to your host, Vinny Bonsignor. i tell you what's funny. I mean, this is true. My dad was an offensive line coach at University of Penn when I was a little kid before he became my high school coach. So <laughs> I've always spent a lot of time there. It's, it's kind of interesting. There, um, every college practice I go to, every NFL practice I ever went to, I, I, I gravitated towards O-line, Not partly because of my dad, but more because I think that's kind of the backbone of what you're doing offensively. I think everything grows from the let, – let's put the quarterback on the side for a second. That's a special conversation. But beyond the quarterback, I'm a huge believer that your offensive line kind of drives your entire team and certainly your offense. So, A, I love that anyway. And, B, was I anxious to see how Leatherwood was going to play? Yeah. Um, you know, you trade three guys. A lot of people criticized the moves, you know, and, and Cable, me, and Gruden are probably most energized about watching these young guys compete. And that, that's not when I'm, I'm not electing any of them to, to Canton. I'm just saying we're excited to watch these kids compete. That's Raiders general manager Mike Mayock earlier today uh, when I asked him, and this was the truth, like during training camp, I'd always see Mike Mayock over by the offensive line. You know, always watching, was always there by the offensive At some point or another, he was always there and stayed there for a long time, watching and observing. And so I was just like, hey, man, you spent a lot of time with the offensive line. I know you were elsewhere, but you were really um, keying in on, on the offensive line, what's behind that. And, um, you know, Mike went on to explain 
that that's partly his thing. And it goes back to, you know, uh, his dad, who was the offensive line coach at the University of Penn, Pennsylvania, um, and then became his, you know, high school uh, football coach. But it kind of planted the seed. And so when Mike goes out to a college practice or wherever um, his travels takes him uh, in his evaluation process, one of the first things that he looks at is the offensive line. Uh, From that, though, of course, and there's no doubt about this, that offensive line, the rebuilt offensive line of the Raiders is hugely important to whatever is or isn't going to happen this year. Uh, for the Raiders offensively, you know, obviously Derek Carr, and as as Mike mentioned, you know, you put the quarterback over here to the side. That's a that's a whole other story right there, and you have to have that. It doesn't matter how good your offensive line is, but I'll say this: if your offensive line isn't good, it also probably doesn't matter a lot of the times how good the quarterback is. We saw it in the Super Bowl. We saw Patrick Mahomes get neutralized. In the Super Bowl, the great Patrick Mahomes, there's no question. He is the best quarterback in the NFL. And it probably isn't, um, it's not open for debate. And I think that he's decidedly the best quarterback in the NFL. But even he, as good as he is, as mobile as he is, as strong of an arm as he has, as able as he is to get velocity on the ball and accuracy when he's sometimes sideways or throwing off the wrong foot or throwing on the run or throwing across his body or throwing when, you know, two guys are converging on him, as good as he is even at that point, there's a breaking point for every quarterback. If you can't protect the player, if you can't protect the quarterback, All bets are off, and that's what happened in the Super Bowl. So, as good as Derek Carr is, and I believe Josh Jacobs and Kenyon Drake, be really interesting to see how much better Henry Ruggs is and Brian Edwards. Everybody's really excited about uh, those two players. Hunter Renfro, I think we have a good handle on on where uh, he is. Darren Waller, needless to say, how good Darren Waller is. I think Willie Sneed... um, you know, the uh, the role that he'll carve out for himself, multiple roles. He's just a good football player. Zay Jones, uh, as good of weapons as the Raiders have, and it could be really special if some young players take a big step forward, it still doesn't really matter much if the offensive line isn't squared away. So I was always thinking about that, you know, um, wanting to pay as much money as possible to get into Mike Mayock's head to find out what's he thinking right now watching this day after day after day. Now, if he was thinking what I was thinking, and I keyed in quite a bit on two guys, really, Andre James and Alex Leatherwood. It helped that the offensive line was literally right in front of our face at training camp. They were on our side of the field. To get over there to watch the cornerbacks and safeties, you had to like move all the way down to one side of the field and kind of look downward and and watch. Whereas the offensive line, defensive line was right there, you know, uh, for for individuals, and you get a lot out of that. Power off the ball, speed off the ball, explosion. Are they picking up the keys? Are they passing the, um, the, the, the some of the intelligence tests, some of the tests that the offensive line is, is throwing at them? 
right there, you know, in the spur of the moment, in real time. What I saw from Alex Leatherwood, and to me this was substantiated in the games, was a player that has great get-off. This guy flies off the football, especially in, you know, obviously in run, in, in run blocking, you have to. You're an attacking player as a run blocker. As a pass blocker, it's more, you know, you're backing up, you're getting your footwork correct, uh, you're getting your leverage, you're, you're getting your hands out to uh, engage and to, and to neutralize the oncoming rusher. It's a much more of a, not reactionary, I can't quite go there, uh, but, the, the, you know, you, you don't want to over-attack as a pass blocker because these guys at this level can make you look really silly. They can use your aggressiveness against you and get you off balance, and then they got you beat, and you're calling in for the backup quarterback because your quarterback just got his nose driven into the turf. So you don't want that to happen, obviously. But when I watched Alex Leatherwood, I saw a guy who violently came off the ball, and when he got his hands on somebody, it was a done deal. I also saw somebody that I think has to work a little bit on pass blocking, but he's got all that you need, all the necessary skills. And Andre James um, looks fine. I think I think I think he's going to be just fine. And I think that offensive line has a chance to be pretty darn good, and certainly much more available and consistent given the year that they came off uh, last year. The big key to that will be um, our guard. That we're missing. What am I? Who am I uh, missing? The uh, Richie Incognito, our guy Richie Incognito, needs to be out there. He's not out there right now. Uh, we'll see how long that injury is. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador. We will not be on tomorrow. There's a baseball game, so we're going to miss you. Friday, we'll be back out at the uh, Treasure Island, 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, at the Golden Circle Sportsbook at Treasure Island. Please come out and join us. It's fun. It's a great atmosphere. I want to say thanks to Ashley Nicole Smith. I want to say thanks to Devon Cotton, our great producer. We will see you guys on Friday.